I'm glad I've got my girls. Could you head up? What? Could you head up? You know that song, y'all. That TV show called Living Single by with Khadijah. And it was by what? Queen Latifah back in the day, back in the 90s. They were all living their best life in an apartment in a big city, dating, getting their careers together, trying to handle the fellas. Ooh, those were some fun times. I clearly remember my 20s. I got a chance to study abroad in Brazil. I was young, single, living my best life, learning the samba, learning the salsa, cha-cha-cha, etc. And that was my first time when I got my first passport and I got a chance to travel. Such a fun time of my life. Well, today we are going to meet author, entrepreneur, educator, Couture Kendrick. She just dropped her first book, no thanks, black female in living in a modern free zone. She's going to talk about being single, black female, choosing to be unmarried and childless and unbothered. And guess what? Loving it. All right. We're so excited to have Miss Katora Kendrick on the show. And thank you so much. Yes. Thanks so much for coming to Global Take the number one news spot for global issues from the Black perspective. Today we have Mrs. Ms. Katora Kendrick. She is an author, educator, world traveler, and um, she's going to tell us her journey of living overseas and what it's like being a Black woman, being single, and just living your best life and then coming back. So um, welcome to the show, Mrs. Ms. Ms. Kendrick. Thank you so much. I appreciate being um, invited and I'm looking forward to our chat. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. So, um, so yes, how are you doing? And um, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself? And, well, um, yeah. I'm doing well. Um, as you said to your guests, um, I am an author, a speaker, an educator, and a traveler. Um, I originally am from New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, I call New Orleans my first love. Um, The love of my life, however, is the city where I am currently in, New York City. And I've lived in New York minus the five years I was jaunting around the world. I've lived in New York since my mid-20s, so about maybe 20 years or so. Um, I am fiercely, fiercely, fiercely committed to vocalizing and highlighting the free Black woman. And in my definition of what that means, it is Black women who have done what I have inspired to do, even if they don't do it exactly like me. And that is Mm -hmm. to center themselves in every Mm -hmm. decision that they make and to live lives that are design based on their blueprint and no one else's. Um, So yeah, so I am committed to uh, the free black woman and in some ways that takes the form of black women who are single and child free by choice. Sometimes it takes the form of black women who eschew sort of traditional jobs and professions and travel the world. But I am a huge proponent and in 90s lingo, I am ride or die (laughs) for for Black women as a whole. So that's who I am in a nutshell, I guess. (laughs) Can you tell us a little bit about your book? Um, It was a best-selling book. You launched it in China and um, when you were living there. And what inspired you to write the book? 
Well, thank you. My book is called No Thanks. And the title actually, thanks to my publisher, because she sort of hit me to your title is not going to work to sell books. Um, (laughs) So the title is called No Thanks. And I think the title alludes to um, what what not only what you can read in the book, but also why I wrote it. Um, no Thanks is a collection of essays that basically sort of goes into detail about the things I have rejected um, that many people believe are the only sources of a woman's true fulfillment and joy and happiness. So I have known since I was a child myself, I would not have children. I would not be raising children. It's never felt like something that would fit my life. Um, I've been historically indifferent to marriage and the older I've gotten, I've become disinterested in it. And I have not found myself committed to the idea of the construct of God that exists in Christianity and many deity-based religions. And I've also been um, dealing with, as I would say, wanderlust for as long as I can imagine. And so I'm also not interested in the idea that in order to be a good daughter, a good sister, a good friend, a good auntie, you have to live within a six block radius of all the people you care about. So um, I've moved and traveled and transitioned all around the world in these 20 or some so years since I left New Orleans and came to New York City. So I wrote the book because what I realized when, especially when I moved abroad, my first country was Rwanda and East Africa. What I realized was I thought I was a unicorn and I thought that I was somehow unique, but I'm not. What is unique about my experience is no one ever really writes about it. You don't you don't get the perspective of the black woman who doesn't have those things because she's not interested. Often what you get is the poor, sad black woman who's made peace with the fact that she just won't meet her Boaz and she won't have children. She's made peace with, you know, the job she's in doesn't really fulfill her, but, you know, people need her. So she's going to stay in this job, although she wants to maybe move to Playa de Carmen, in Mexico. She's going to stay in this job in her hometown because, you know, people need her. Um, so I wrote the book because I encountered many women in Rwanda, um, both local Rwandan women and expat Black women who were versions of me, even if they weren't making the exact same choices as I was. And it occurred to me that I see my story reflected all up and down my Facebook timeline. When I go to brunch, I see my story reflected. Where I don't see my story is in dominant culture and in media narratives of what it means to be a woman of a certain age, especially a woman who wears black skin, a woman of a certain age who hasn't made the choices, who isn't living the exact life of the boomers. Um, And it's one, a choice that's made with joy. It's a choice that is filled with fulfillment. I didn't see that reflected very much. So I started writing no thanks towards my, the end of my two year tenure in Rwanda. And especially when I went to China, I, again, it was confirmed for me so many times that my story needed to be told because so many other people, other people tell my story and they get it wrong each and every time. And this is a very clearly biased perspective. It never seems to me that they truly want the husband and the children as much as they want to be able to prove that some man chose them and they were able to have children. Like they just want to be able to be normal. I think in, in a sense, that's the sense, the sense I get 
quite often when I when I talk to, to women who, especially women who are, who are well into their 30s, who are still judging themselves on whether or not they have Ooh. these things, it doesn't seem that they actually want the thing as much as they want to be seen as normal. Mm, they need the validation. Yeah, I think I see that a lot. And of course, when people share this with me, I, like I said, you we all struggle with whatever. And I work really hard not to make women have to prove themselves to me. But it just seems to me that when, when they talk about this, and again, they have lives that seem to be quite lovely and that they enjoy. So when they they're judging themselves or putting so much pressure and being so frustrated and, you know, basically they got, they have bumps on their knees because they are praying all day for Boaz. Like they're putting all this pressure on themselves. It doesn't seem like the thing that they're praying for is actually what they truly really want. Like it's like this idea that it's going to bring something to their lives that they already have anyway. It seems like it's mm-hmm. just, I want to prove that some man wants me. I want to prove that I am worthy of having all these things that women are supposed to have, especially again, heterosexual women are supposed to have in order to legitimately call themselves fully realized women. You know, when I read your book, um, like, cause I'm married and I have children, but when I read it, I really felt empowered in the sense of, you know, women staking their own claim and, and having making their own choices in life and and feeling confident enough in those in those decisions that um, regardless of other people's judgments that they will they won't be bothered by it because they're really confident. Can you talk about just like your personal evolution of having a sense of self of self worth and self confidence? Um, the choice, life choice that you made to not get married and have children, and just what other women who you've met overseas, like um, in their journey, like comparing their journey to yours, and um, just some thoughts about that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, first of all, I'm glad that you felt empowered. Um, thank you for that, um, because my goal is to just make women feel empowered again, regardless of your choice. Um, mm-hmm. I guess, comparatively speaking, I um, my journey, I'm not sure how I would compare it to women I've encountered abroad. I do know that what has made me unique is I never felt, I never tried to necessarily stuff myself into the box of what I should want. My journey has been to become comfortable with not being comfortable with stuffing myself into a box. The things I wrote about in No Thanks, No Thanks, I have felt since I was a teenager and have never allowed myself to be convinced otherwise. What I did a lot in my journey was just keep quiet because it would become clear to me when I would voice these perspectives that I, I was I, I was made to feel like I had to explain myself and prove that I wasn't lying, that I wasn't broken or had been traumatized by whatever, which is why I'm making these decisions that I wasn't selfish. So I never once doubted the legitimacy of who of the woman I knew I would be. What I did was just keep that woman to myself because it was easier than having to deal with the pushback that people would claim was not pushback, but every single and child fruit by choice black woman I know has said the same thing. It's pushback. So I think when I look at and when I think about um, 
women who I have met overseas in Rwanda and China and in my travels across both continents, what what I see is a, a lot of women who, whether they decide to take on all of the traditional roles that we've been sort of conditioned to believe is necessary for adulthood in general, but especially for womanhood specifically, I think they don't start to even question whether they truly want these things or question the validity of these things ever. <laughs> I, 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 I think when I, especially when I did my book launch in um, Shanghai, when No Thanks dropped, I distinctly remember a Chinese coworker who I was friendly with basically tell me she was afraid to buy my book because if she read it she felt she would call off her wedding and we had a couple of conversations yeah it was a very awkward I was at the at basically in the hall like good morning how you doing girl and she shared us with me and I was like well I wasn't really prepared to have this conversation with you <laughs> but okay so we had a couple of conversations um, after that, she did come to the book launch. She did get the book. Um, and we've sort of kept in touch loosely a little bit in the, um, oh, wow, it's been two years since I left Shanghai. In the two years since I left Shanghai. But what what my conversations with her sort of underscored was literally women make these life-defining choices with no thought. <laughs> and I know mm-hmm. that that sounds harsh, but I think it's true. I think there have been a number of women who have chosen marriage in childhood who have who have reached out to me and said, you know, I don't regret it. And I'm glad they don't, because I think I can understand why you'd want that structure. A lot of security, a, a lot of loyalty. I think it's honorable to, to choose that. But they've said to me, I never thought about it, though. Like, I read your book and it floors me that this is a life like committing to someone for a whole entire life, almost committing to almost dying on a table, giving birth. Um and then raising this child for especially today's world, the next 20, 30 years of my life, I never really seriously sat and thought about what that would mean, what it, requ- what it would require of me, and if I wanted to do any of the stuff, even the stuff that you can kind of predict, because I'm sure in parenthood and marriage, there's a lot of stuff you can't predict for. But I never thought about any of that. I truly never thought about it. I spent more time thinking about where I wanted to go to college. <laughs> than, than all of this. And I think that is a, a trend that I've seen with women across the world that I think for myself and a lot of child-free women, especially child-free and single women, spend a lot of time thinking about. Like, it, it's funny to me how we're often, we're often, people often demand that we explain why. Why don't you want a husband? Why don't you want children? And we are tickled by that the older we get because we're like, all that shit that you complain about on Facebook, we thought about that. <laughs> like I thought quite often. I looked around me and I saw what it took for my mother to raise us. I saw what it took, you know, went to, to sort of be in a long-term marriage. I saw that often the, the wife wraps her life around the husband and the family, and that's how the family grows. I very rarely saw the opposite happening. No shade to that, but this is what I saw. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm not gonna do that. So I I thought about it a lot and it was clear to me, oh, okay, so this is not a construct that's going to work for me. And I think a lot of women around the globe never just sit down and question it. Even if they decide, okay, I know what it's going to take and I'm going to go ahead. You know, wonderful. They just do it 
and never really think about on a day-to-day basis having this in my life, having this construct for a life is going to require the following 10 or 15 things. And do I want to do that? Do, do Am I going to look at this, the construct as I see it all around me and just sort of pay attention? And do I want to do that? They, they never do. And they take on this life. Some of them make it work and are perfectly fine and would probably do it again if they had to, now that they know what it takes. And some are like, nah, I'm good. If I had known before, I probably wouldn't have done it. So I think maybe I think when I compare it, I, I, I feel that a lot of women I've seen around the world never sort of question and challenge before they make that decision. And I did it. I questioned and challenged it as early on. Um, and so maybe that's why it hasn't been hard to accept it as an, as an, as a woman in her forties now, because I've been observing it for a while. Do you feel like culturally, like, um, going back into being single overseas, um, yeah, being single and choosing to be child-free, do you feel like culturally America kind of allows you, just living in America and being in America kind of allows you to have that freedom to question and choose because we've had the women's women's rights movement. Um, it's a very liberal society. And then other cultures are um, have very strong roles in what a woman's role is in society and what a man's role is in society. Yes and no. I think, especially in many countries and cultures in Africa, um, there's a rigidity in gender roles. There is a commitment to the the basic practicality of the family structure and husbands slash fathers doing a certain thing and wives slash mothers being responsible for a certain thing. So I think, yes, that's true. I also think America believes itself to be much more progressive than it really is. And I think if you ask many single and child-free women how progressive this culture is in sort of allowing women to be women, we would say, well, yeah, it's better than I guess if you were in rural Nigeria, (laughs) but our lives sort of speak differently. I think America has a lot of pretense. And one of the things people find funny about when I talk about being in Africa and why there, in some ways I miss the culture is because there was no pretense. People just spoke plainly and they said, basically, you were crazy. <laughs> no, clearly nobody said that to me, but <laughs> there was this sort of sense of, well, I guess you can do you. You're cool. I'm still going to talk to you, but that's just weird. Um, and that's just not going to work. What I found in America, and there are some pockets like in America, like New York City, clearly you can throw, you can throw a brick to, to Brooklyn and hit like 50,000 Katoras. But what I found a lot in America is, yes, individually, there are more of us, especially in the 21st century, who are eschewing quote unquote traditional family structures. But there still is a lot of laws and a lot of structures and a lot of unwritten rules about if you're choosing a life without a husband and wife, I mean, a husband and children, then basically you're choosing to be second-class citizens. Like if you ask a number of single and child-free women how it's assumed, if somebody has to work late or we got to pull straws for coming in on Christmas because you do not have children and a family, 
people look at you like, of course, you are going to give up your 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 travel days or whatever for this new mother who like it's assumed that because you don't have this, your life is less important. And while you individually have much more freedom and ability to succeed in America as a single woman than, say, someone again in rural <laughs> Nigeria, there still is a societal structure. I mean, a structural and it makes sense that it's structural because this whole, you don't necessarily have to be tied to a husband in order to, to be able to do basic economic things. That's a relatively new. Up until 1975, Couture would not have been able to get a credit card without a, without a husband's signature. I was born in 1975. So this wow. whole... Wow, that's not too long ago. Yeah, I was born in 1975. So for 46 years, this country has been dealing with the fact that women don't have to be owned in order to just live a goddamn life. So I think it's still relatively new in this country. And I think what America does well is convince itself that it is much more progressive than it really is. And because we are so doggedly independent, it works to my advantage because I can as an independent, as an individual woman, accomplish certain things. Like I could leave the Bible Bible Belt South and move to New York City where there are more people like me, you know? But still, I've sat in meetings where I have literally heard people say, Mm -hmm. (laughs) well, since I don't have, you know, kids to take care of Friday, yeah, I can cover, I can chaperone the school dance. And I have actually said, I don't have kids or a husband and I will not be chaperoning the school dance. I'll be watching Netflix at home. Thank you very much. (laughs) I have a life, I have a life. Yeah, like, you know, I'm not, I'm glad you love your kids and you know, you have, and lovely for you, but I've I've taken birth control for years. I don't have to do that. So yeah, I'm not coming in. I love it. I love that freedom that you have. And um, <laughs> I kind of live vicariously through you. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. But live, live vicariously through yourself, girl. Live your life and live it to whatever standards you want to live it to. <laughs> but, uh, on that note, um, can you just talk about like, because you, how many countries have you been to? And um, what has it been like traveling as a single female to different countries? I have been to, like, when I was in in, in Rwanda, I got to tell you, like, I was like, I had two minutes to live, and I was like, I'm going to see all these goddamn countries. <laughs> so when I was in Africa, I visited about, I would say maybe 14 African countries. And then when I was in Shanghai, I visited probably maybe a six or seven different countries on in Asia. Um, so I'm going to say, and before I, I moved abroad, I'd done some international travel. So I'm going to say about maybe 25 in total over the span of, of my adult life. And traveling as a single woman wow. is, yeah, yeah, I, I realized. That's a lot of countries. And yeah, I didn't think about it until you brought it up. But yeah, <laughs> I guess I did, I did get a lot of it. <laughs> traveling as a, a single woman is fun. Um, it can get lonely sometimes. And I've learned to sit with the loneliness and appreciate it and accept that it's a feeling like any other feeling um, and to sort of examine what it truly is I'm feeling when I'm feeling lonely. But it's mostly exciting and it's mostly, um, what do you call it, intellectually, it it helps with your intellectual growth because you get to choose what you're going to do and you get to set your own schedule. Um, And I'm not one of those travelers who 
feels like every single moment has to be filled with something. Like I'm a kind of person, like I want one main thing. I want one major thing, whether it's going to a bunch of, a couple of museums, whether it's taking a tour, taking one of those tourist tours somewhere. And then I come back to the Airbnb or the hotel and I read a book by the pool and have somebody bring me barbecue meats and, and alcohol. Um, so I can do that. And when I've traveled with friends, although I've enjoyed it as a different experience or even traveled with a partner, it's there's a, a level of compromising you have to make that I'm kind of like this is cool, but I'm glad I don't do this. <laughs> I'm glad I don't have to do this often because you end up um, not having the the exact experience that you desire. So I find it has really opened me up in ways I was not aware of until I came back to the states and then. COVID hit and I couldn't go anywhere. Um, I just reflected on how it's opened me up to just the immensity of the world. And that some, I think what people often, when women, when women ask me about traveling solo because they're nervous about danger, um, I always say you should definitely be aware. It's not something that is, 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 is not important. But what I've learned traveling alone as a woman for so many years is that people are much more kind and nurturing and and who, who have best intentions than not um and i and because you're alone people sometimes assume that you are lonely even if you're not at that moment so they're more open to wanting to have conversations with you to wanting to invite you to other things that you probably wouldn't get invited to if you had a bunch of people with you because there's no entry point to talk to you if you have a crew then you know you have a crew to talk to. But if you're alone, people are like, oh, let me talk to her and see how she's doing, you know, suggest places she could go, you know, have her invite over to my mama house for some for some home cooked food. So I find that that's a huge plus when you are traveling as a single woman throughout the world. People are generally I find kind um, and want to make sure that you are safe. Like they will tell you, you know, make sure you don't go to this spot by yourself because, you know, you could be a target. And often it's a target for just money theft. It's not <laughs> like they're going to try to take advantage of you and, and get 20 extra dollars out of you. It's not even a, you'll be a target for violence or, or whatever. Um, so it's been a very fulfilling experience for me and I cannot wait until the COVID lifts, <laughs> if it ever lifts, so I can, I can get out there again. <laughs> I know it's so sad. Sometimes I watch movies and I'm like, wow, people were so happy two years ago. <laughs> people were all closed. They were touching each other. They were going to concerts and whatnot. Look at all these people in the same little room. <laughs> I'm like, that looks so strange to me now. <laughs> but but uh, moving on. But like, when it comes to Blacktail, what is Blacktail to you? And what's your perception of this movement? And, um, do you consider yourself like part of the Black Sit movement? Hmm. Well, my perception of Black Sit is there is uh, mostly, in my humble opinion, a media-driven narrative that many Black folk in America are so overwhelmed and so disenchanted by the racist structure on which this country was built that we are making the decision to move to other countries explicitly linked to George Floyd was murdered, Breonna Taylor was murdered. There's a psychopathic white supremacist who was running this country up until two months ago, that we're all leaving because of that. My perspective on it is there are some people who are like, I'm done, I'm fed up, burn America to the ground. 
they are leaving. And I often think when they do leave, they're going to end up coming back real quick because when you leave as a reactionary to all the wrongs of your country, you're leaving without a solid plan and out and out and not a solid footing to make a good life in another country. Because what you discover when you get to the other country is that your American privilege may buy you some relief from your black skin, but the structures of that country will teach you some lessons on how injustice and anti-blackness are global. So I think the perception is, and I've read some stuff from the major news networks that have covered Blackset, and the perception is that the many Black expats who have, you know, moved to Mexico, to parts of Europe, to certain African countries, that they're doing it because they're fed up. They saw the latest killing of an innocent, unarmed Black man or woman, and they're like, I'm done. I don't think I'm a part of Blackset, and I don't think many Black expats who have moved abroad are a part of Blackset. Blackset. I do think that clearly the better life that we seek overseas are linked in some ways to structural racism. So when I decided to move, I had been in the same job for 10 years and I loved the job. It was the reason why I was teaching at an all-girls public school. And that public school was the reason why I wanted to teach. So when I left, I felt I felt stifled. I had been there about 10 years. It was a small school that teachers don't leave from because it was a good school in New York City. And I didn't see much growth for me there. Some of that was because it's a small school and teachers don't leave. And some of it was because, generally speaking, as a Black woman, there were so many other places I could go. I did some research interviewing for, for education-adjacent positions, and I found that it was much more difficult than I realized to get in, although I felt more than qualified. And again, who's to say it was based specifically on they're going to hire the white dude instead of me, or simply, yes, you are qualified, but there are certain applicants who are more qualified. So it was all of that. So I left because I was like, I'm going to go see if there's more opportunities for me outside of this country. I left because I wanted to travel more and because of the way wealth has historically been transferred in this country, I do not come from independent wealth. I cannot afford to go into a trust fund and just travel and quit my job for two, three years and travel the world. I couldn't do that. I need to be employed. And so teaching became a good way for me to be able to, to, to work overseas and still have enough money to enjoy traveling. So there are reasons why we want better lives are rooted in inequities um, because of structural racism. But I don't I don't see the mass majority of black Americans who are like leaving, quote unquote, because America is racist. I think they're intrigued and curious and they understand that we have much more freedom and options that our parents did not have and we're gonna take them. So I think the movement of more black Americans seeing what's out there besides America is fabulous and I am in full support of it. I think if you are a black American who is like, I hate America and all it stands for, like this scorched earth mentality and I'm never coming back, I will chant that you get what you think you're going to get and what you're seeking in whichever country you choose. And that includes the continent of Africa, because again, yeah. anti-blackness is prominent in Africa. <laughs> it really is. I mean, it's, it's a shame. I mean, when I live in Rwanda, Colonialism, I mean, colonialism has a history. 
that colonial mentality in Africa is really deep. And um, when I went, when I was in Rwanda, we went to this party, and my uh, white friends were able to get in without even being checked because they always check you. They always do a security check. And my white friends, they were just able to just slide on in. And then when when they got to me, they checked me. I was like, really? And then when there wasn't even a question about it, I had to like raise the issue and. Like, and they didn't even think it was a problem. That was it, just... They don't. That's that's how anti-blackness works. That's how sexism works. That's how classism works. That's how racism works. Nobody thinks about it. This is just the way we do things. What What do you mm-hmm. mean? And they probably were deeply offended when you accused them. They probably told you that's America's problems. We don't have that here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> got... We're the only country that has racism. Speaking on that, um, can you, you made a really good point about people who, Black Americans who just get fed up and like, oh, I just hate American, I'm going to leave and never coming back. And then they come back a couple of years ago. And I've met some characters, I'm not going to say any names, but I've met a couple of yeah, characters. Don't say no names, girl. Don't say, don't say no names. <laughs> I'm not going to say any names. But um, can you just talk about what the, what is the best way to Blacks it, if you will, or just live overseas, like, um, especially financially, um, yeah, can you just talk about that? Because you don't want to like liquidate your whole 401k or your savings just to go overseas. So can you just talk a little bit about that? I think the best way is to have a reason that's not attached to trauma. And I know that first one is hard to do because you don't know all the time that you're going through trauma. <laughs> but I think if you have a reason that is bigger than just simply, I hate my life here. That's a good starting point. Because if you hate your life here, once you get to your new country, after the first six months of traveling furiously and, you know, being hyped about being somewhere new after that, whereas if you're going to hate your life again, um, and it's going to be more intense because you hate your life in a country, well, you don't speak the language and they have all these weird rules that are not American and you believe because they're not American, they're wrong. So I think having, um, something bigger than just simply, I hate my life. I'm not saying you have to have a whole list of goals. I think that's part of the adventure of moving overseas. Like, let's see what happens. That's a wonderful way to go. But if if it's attached to something more than just, I hate my life, I don't like it. I want to, it's the country's a problem. I'm going to go to a new country. I think if you feel that way, don't leave yet. <laughs> You're not oh, ready. Wow. You're not. So like you need to get therapy or I mean, what? Well, I think I, I feel like therapy is something you should have on your on your payroll of, of health services, period. But I think you need to really sit with and examine what it is about your life in this country that is not working and why it's not working. Because the reason why it's working is likely not attached to the country itself. It's attached to your interaction with the country more than anything else. And that's fine if the country, if your interaction with the country is awful, fine. But I think you just sit and examine with what specifically is not working with my life. Because your interaction with the country, you're going to take you to that next country too. So examine what is not working with my life. Now, you can decide if you're going to try to fix what's not working with your life in the country. You can decide, I'm still not going to try to fix it here. I'm still going to go to this other country. But examine what exactly is the problem, because it's not the country itself. So examine that. If you are over the age of 20, you likely have responsibilities financially. You likely have student debt. You likely have 
an idea of wanting to save money. If you've been working for five or 10 years, at least you've gotten, you've become a part of the system in a way and that, that corporate cog. So you have money as a, as, as, as a necessity and responsibilities attached to that money. So if you are in the workforce, I would say do some research about how you can make money in whatever country you want to go to. You don't have to necessarily be tied to a specific country. I think it's better not to be. If there's a, a specific region of the world you're interested in, like I wanted to go to West Africa, but I just happened to find a job in Rwanda first and I didn't want to wait and keep digging to find a job in Senegal or Ghana, which were my top countries. So I chose the region of Africa because it had financially and structurally um, what was going to be most beneficial to me as a 39-year-old woman who had a mortgage, who still has student debt, who had a retirement plan that I wanted to still contribute to. That just made sense for me. So do the research, decide what region of the world most intrigues you. You can decide a specific country and that region is your goal, but be open enough to say at least this region I've done the self-exploration and self-awareness of what is not working about my life in my home country. I've done that, and I haven't attached it to the the effed-upness of the country. I've attached it to just me and how I am the reason why my life is not working in some situations. So you've done that. You've done the research. If you want to continue to work for a person, to be an employee, then you start applying for jobs. Um, You negotiate your contract. In the best situation, you go to this new country with a visa that someone else, some corporation or entity or organization has sponsored that you're working for. I think it's probably easier and you would probably be less prone to being deported if you get a visa from an employer. Um, that's just the way, only way I know how to do it. I, I'm sure there are some entrepreneurs or artists who have found some other way to go to these countries with the right visa, but I would just feel more secure if I'm going there under an employer's sponsorship. That's just the way I feel about it. And deportation, that is a, um, that's an experience that most black people, black Americans specifically don't even know. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I I, I don't know. I don't know it. I don't know. I don't know anybody in other countries who have been deported. So I don't even know the experience, what experience is like in another country. I would think it's not pleasant. (laughs) At the least. Now that you've come back, like after China and Rwanda, can you just talk about your experience in China and then like what made you decide to come back to the United States after China? Like what, why you didn't keep going to the next country? Well, I enjoyed, I, I enjoyed China um, and Rwanda. Um, I'm actually, I've had to reflect a lot about this since my next book is about the, the experiences my experience living abroad for those years. I enjoyed China because especially after Rwanda, I realized how much of a city girl I am. Like there's a reason why New York City is the love of my life. Just I think the resources available to you in a city, the ease of negotiating transportation and travel around the city, the diversity in people around a major city, really speaks to me. So when I went to Shanghai, it was because I was like, I, I need a city. I'm not ready to go back to New York City. So I want whatever the version of New York City could be <laughs> abroad. Um, so I liked New York City because I, it exposed me. I mean, I like Shanghai in China because it exposed me to a bunch of different cultures that I was not aware of. It, it gave me a, some education on Chinese culture that I had never really thought about. And it made me understand a lot of how they operate here in the States. Um, but what I saw was 
when my contract was up, like I extended my contract, I had a two-year contract and I extended it for one year because I was like, okay, I'm not ready to go. I'm enjoying my time here. But at the, in the middle of that third year, I started really examining why I was abroad. Like what was my reason for every two years, quite literally packing up my life and moving to another country? What was the reason for that? And what I started to feel was an emptiness because what I realized was, although I met some wonderful people and I still have good girlfriends from Rwanda and some cool people from, from um, China who I'm in touch with and we were there for each other. What I realized was that what is important to me is a network of my tribe. Like my friends here in New York City, I consider to be my family. And I realized that there is... This is not popular to talk about, I think, in the the travel, the Black travel movement circle. I think there's a level of superficiality to expat life. Um, And especially expat life, the way I saw myself and many people doing it. So it's not like I have done some research. I feel connected to Senegal. I'm going to move to Senegal and develop a life there, whether that life means marrying and starting a family or just putting down roots in I'm going to stay in Senegal. So I'm committed to this to this country and being a part of it. What I saw a lot of in my circle was literally I got a two-year contract. I'm going to come here and you know I'm not going to be rude or like not learn the culture, but I'm here to travel all around the region. And then when my contract is up, I'm going to go to the next country and, you know, start over again. I, I saw a lot of that. And I think it's very difficult to make deep connections when you don't have 10 or 15, 20 years with that, with that, with those people. I think you create deep, last, long lasting connections with time. And when I took on expat life, I was in my late thirties. I was literally knocking on 40. So I had spent 20 years making those connections that I just sort of left. And while I still did my best to maintain connection with my my friends, you're being literally in a, like across the world that it those those connections lessen a little bit. And while you can create you know, meaningful friendships and have a good time with with people you meet abroad. There should, I just felt that there was a level of my floating about without being attached to any people. And it felt weird. And I just remember my boss asking, you know, are you going to come back next year? I just want to know so because the job fairs are coming up and I want to know who I need to replace. And I just remember thinking, I know I don't want to stay here another year. I'm, I feel like I'm done with China, but what's the point? Like, I'm, I'm going to go on search associates, look for another job somewhere else and then move there and start all over again. Like, why? Um, so it was just not having a reason anymore to be abroad and feel like, okay, I've done what I've come to do, whatever that was. And now it's time to go back home. Uh, that's, that's really deep. I mean, particularly like the relationships. And I find that too, like living overseas, you do feel like you don't have those deep relationships, the same deep relationship you would have had if you hadn't known someone for 20 years. Um, it is kind of weird to some degree. Yeah. <laughs> but um, can you just talk a little bit about like what it's been like to be back in America, to living in China and Rwanda? Um, the freedoms that you have here versus overseas and whether or not you um, plan to go back overseas again. 
the first six six months back, um, it was literally like moving to a new country. It was nostalgia. It was excitement. It was frustration with things that I realized this does not work. Like, why they don't have WeChat here? Why I got to pull out my debit card again? This is really, really primitive. <laughs> but um, it felt right being back mm-hmm. those first six months. I got to reconnect with my friends. I got to re-enjoy the city that I love. And and I got to 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 love up on my apartment, being back in my apartment again and redecorated based on who this new couture was. Um, it became difficult. And that's not even the right word. It be, I started to become disenchanted and confused about this country the longer I've been back. So probably around the year mark, there were certain things that because I had lived outside of American borders, I could not unsee and I couldn't make myself make peace with with this country. And the biggest one was health care or the lack thereof in health care. Like there are systems in this country that are not broken. People say they are broken, but they are working the exact same, the exact way they were designed to work. So there are systems in this country that just remind me so often of how America does not care about Americans in, in many ways. And it's it I didn't see it so much until I came back. And I saw it most prominently in the medical industrial complex, like the individual doctors and the people who work in that nurses and the staff in you know hospitals and clinics and your your doctors, they 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 those people are wonderful and nice, but the system itself is just it's bizarre how expensive it is and how ineffective it is in actual care of people's health. And I think the COVID thing pretty much blasted that the inequities involved too, out, out of the water too. So I, I don't regret coming back. I'm glad I did um, because like I said, I've always followed my gut and my heart and created my own rules. So my gut and my heart said, girl, you need to go back to New York City. So I was like, all right, cool, you're right. So I <laughs> I don't regret it, but I think- Hear you on that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's hard to unsee just- the, the 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 lack of care for its countrymen that the country as a whole is embedded in the country as a whole. I am very certain I'm about 80 to 85, 80 to 90% certain that I will not be growing old and dying in this country. Uh, my plan is when I'm ready to retire to um, start a Golden Girls commune, probably in South or Central America somewhere, because the, the friends who I want to start this commune with, they're not going to want to go to Thailand or, or Africa when they're ready to retire. They, they want to be close to the States because, you know, they want to be close to their friends and family and their connections here. So my plan is to retire abroad. Um, I don't for I don't see myself growing old and dying here. I feel like I'll be here for another maybe 10 years be 15, depending on how well I manage my money and I'm ready to retire. <laughs> but when it's time, <laughs> exactly. When it's time, you know, to lay my burdens down and to, you know, to only, to only work on stuff because I want to, not because I have to, I, I will be, you know, selling my apartment and laying roots probably in Playa de Carmen, Mexico, or some other, you know, some other country south of us, one of our southern neighbors. 
that's that's likely what's going to happen. Okay, okay, I like that idea. That is, I'm really, that's really sweet. So like, oh, have like you. a golden girls retreat and yeah. um, be old and live abroad. <laughs> I'll be able to see that for you. But um, with that said, like, what's new for Mrs. Miss Couture? Sorry, call it Mrs. Sorry. It's okay. Miss no what is new for you? <laughs> what is new for me? Um, what's next for you? What's next, what's next for you? For me? What's next for me is I am working on um, putting together a short ebook, which will feature three travel stories of my shenanigans around the globe, especially as a a woman traveling solo. Um, I'm hoping to have that ebook out and ready for my eager audience by the end of the year. I am not committing to the end of the year because I have only written 1,500 words so far <laughs> on this proposed ebook. But my that's sort of what I'm working on now. Um, I have a pretty decent draft of a manuscript for my next longer print book. Um, and I'm currently looking for the right publishing home for it. So that is not anywhere near on the publication table, but it's sort of going to be my next step. Um, I'm also seeking to do more international travel and speaking. Um, I'm transitioning out of being a classroom teacher. I feel like my mission has been accomplished as a as a classroom teacher, especially a teacher of young people in a school setting. Um, so I'm tr- transitioning from that this school year and moving on to some more independent freelance contract work. Um, and, travel around the world so that is what's next for Katora Kendrick I hear you I hear you well we really enjoyed your story um I hope everyone was inspired and learned something something and they're ready to take over the world um this has been a really great conversation Katora thank you you so much for joining us this morning this early Saturday morning (laughs) and um (laughs) thank you so much thank you for joining Global Take